Father, we pray that you will once again reveal yourself and your word to us. Through Jesus Christ, whose coming we celebrate. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There are a lot of people, both inside the walls of the church and outside of it, who believe that the church is really just for good people. That's not to say the church wouldn't be nice to people who you wouldn't consider good. But they're probably not going to maybe feel real accepted in the church. They're probably not going to feel real comfortable in the church. Now, I know that we don't like to admit that we might think that. But don't we sometimes subconsciously kind of believe that the church is really about people who are nice and loving and free from too much baggage? You know, people like... Like us, right? Is there something deep within us that we want to believe that that's how the church ought to be? And we wrestle with that. And, and one of the reasons we wrestle with it is because we read the scriptures and you don't have to read them very long before you see that that's not the idea of God. And it's not that we miss that because God is being so subtle that it's hard to pick up on it. It's written and shouted all over the pages of Scripture. And one of those places where we see this this visible uh, word to us about the people of the church is right here on the first page in the first words of the first book of the New Testament. Now, most of us understand if you do writing or if you do much reading that it's important to, that writing starts well. You know, if you're going to pick up a book to read, you're trying to figure out, oh, I'm going to read it or not, you know, it's not something assigned to you. You, you, you judge it based on how it begins. And, and you see that through, through much of uh, great literature. For instance, probably one of the most famous opening lines of a book is Tale of Two Cities. It's the best of times, it was the worst of times. And he goes on with that. George Orwell begins 1984. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Ann Tyler writes in Back When We're Grown-Ups, Once upon a time, there was a woman who discovered that she had turned into the wrong person. Dodie Smith begins, I capture the castle with these words. I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. C.S. Lewis begins the voyage of the Dawn Treader. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. In this season, we we think of Dickens' Christmas Carol that begins, Marley was dead to begin with. And Barbara Robinson begins the best Christmas pageant ever. The Hermans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. You know, those are opening lines that grab you. You, you, you want to read more. You want to you read the story. You want to keep going. How you start with readers has such much to do with the readers staying with you. So then you pick up the New Testament and it begins a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
And then it proceeds with Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of, and the father of, and the father of, and the father of. And you're thinking, Lord, is that really how you want to begin this thing? I mean, you don't hear a lot of people who say, I got my life verse out of the first few verses of Matthew 1. How many of us helping a new Christian or somebody introducing them to the faith, how many of us point them to Matthew chapter 1? We tend to say, you know what, if you start in Matthew, just skip over that. That's eh, not that big of a deal. Just go on to the next thing. It's not that important. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, we read that today not just to frustrate the people who had to read. And, you know, I, I know that, that uh, you know, all of you are saying, thank you, Lord, that I wasn't asked to read Scripture today. And, you know, the three people who did, they have to suffer. You know, we, we say, thanks be to God. Okay, I don't know why, but thanks be to God for that part of the Scriptures. And my guess is that when we read this kind of passage, other than being maybe a repository for potential names for our children, we don't pay that much attention to it. And I want to see more of these names used from the children that are born here in the church too, by the way. I'm expecting a lot more to be taken from that. And when you consider the the limited amount of space of, of the writers of the New Testament, the choices that Matthew makes to inc- what to include and what not to include, and the fact that he has really very little to even say about the nativity story, you have to wonder why choose to include this? Why put that in there? To our 21st century minds, we scratch our heads and say, I don't get that. Well, Matthew puts this here, and he begins with this, Because he wants his Jewish audience to see that Jesus fits in to the lineage and the historic line of the Messiah. And genealogies are important to a lot of people. I mean, it is, it's huge. People are very popular among people to to research or genealogies. We we are nothing compared to the importance of genealogies to first century Jews. It's all about proving their validity as a Jew. When the exiles return from, to Jerusalem, Ezra says, if, if the people who say, I'm a part of the line of Levi, if you can't prove that, you can't serve as a priest. It's not enough to say, I'm in the line. You have to have proof. You have to validate what you say is true. The great rabbi Hillel was, said he was so gratified to be able to trace his genealogy back to King David. Jewish historian Josephus, who was writing toward the end of the first century, begins his autobiography by reciting his own pedigree. The genealogical documents were, were public record and they were kept by the Sanhedrin. And, they, and, and being a part of the official genealogy of Israel was so important to value and worth and how people viewed you, that Herod the Great, who was half Jew and half Edomite, was so embarrassed that his name wasn't in the official genealogies because he wasn't fully a Jew, that he ordered all the genealogies to be destroyed so that nobody's pedigree would be purer than his. And the the reason that the first readers of the gospel would be interested in this is that it it would be... Important to know that someone claiming to be the Messiah could prove they were in that line. 
Matthew tells us in verse 17 that he divides the list into three sets of 14 names. And there are a number of theories why he might do that. And in the world of Jewish numerology, the, the number three is representative of God. And the number seven is a perfect number. And so 14 would be like double perfect. And you take the 14s and you make them sevens so that you have six sevens. And then when you get to Christ, he becomes the seventh seven. And if you're into numerology, as many of the Jews would have been, they would read that and say, that's, that's bringing about a period of perfection and fulfillment. In addition, the 14 generations in three groups tells us that that kind of symmetry tells us that this is not intended to be a comprehensive genealogy. It's a selective genealogy. It's a theological genealogy. And that doesn't mean that Matthew's making up people. It just means he's choosing certain people to include and certain people not to include. Which then means that the people he includes ought to cause us to be a bit curious about them. If Matthew's only choosing to name some of the people in Jesus' family tree and he can pick from the people he wants to to make up the 14 in each set then some of his choices seem rather curious and some of them seem a bit mind-boggling. I mean, it's a diverse list of people. You got some good people, you got some bad people, you got some evil people. Rehoboam, whose greedy decision to, to basically enslave the people of Israel ends up dividing the kingdom into two nations. Jehoram's reign is described in 2 Chronicles 21 as he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, forsaking the Lord, the God of his fathers. He built high places on the hills of Judah and he caused the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves and he led Judah astray. And it says that he murdered his own brothers and the chronicler describing his death does so with these words. He passed away to no one's regret. Wow, I was like that on your tombstone. King Ahaz made idols for worshiping the Baals. He sacrificed his sons. He followed the detestable practices of the nations around Israel. And when God brings calamity upon Ahaz to try to get him to wake up and turn around, actually, in his time of trouble, the writer says, he became even more unfaithful to the Lord. And he thought, well, if the If the people of Damascus defeated us, that means their gods must be stronger than mine, so I'll worship their gods. And Ahaz cleared out the temple, locked the doors so no one could worship, and he set up shrines to the other gods all over Jerusalem, and he led the people into obscene idolatry. And then there's Manasseh, the longest reigning king in Israel. Or in Judah, and it's said of him that he leads the people into such sin that they are far worse sinners than the pagans God drives out of Canaan so that Israel can come live there. And they're in Jesus' genealogy. It's curious that there are women included in this genealogy. Women are not typically included in genealogy, it's the males who are important. Women are, you almost get the sense when you read the genealogies that women are just sort of incidental to the whole thing. But Matthew includes some women. 
which I think adds validity and and it adds worth and value to their part in Jesus coming into the world. But it is a bit curious, the women he includes. They're either Gentiles or Jewish women who are in serious trouble. All of them have something about their lives that would make a good Jew step back and go, whoa, why would you include them? Tamar poses poses as a prostitute in order to seduce her dead husband's father and the child of their union is in Jesus' ancestry. Rahab is a Gentile prostitute who helps Israel defeat Jericho. Her son is in Jesus' ancestry. Ruth is a Moabite woman. Her son is in Jesus' ancestry. Bathsheba commits adultery with David Her son is in Jesus' ancestry. Of all the women who bear children on this list, Matthew chooses to single out these. You wonder, why choose these women? I think it's for the same reason that he chooses some of the male scoundrels as well. The plan and purpose of God is not about perfect people. It's about using unlikely people, unlikely turn of events. It's about the grace of God at work when we might least expect it, but when it's most needed. Matthew's interest in in this record isn't just about unexpected people. There are some godly people here too. You notice that there are four Four people or moments that are highlighted in this genealogy. Abraham, David, the exile, and then Jesus. Abraham's first, and you would expect that. He's the father of the Jews. To him, God promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. It's not surprising that David is highlighted. He is the great king of Israel. When Israel looks back to the apex of their existence, it's during David's reign. And not just because of his power, but also because of his spiritual presence. The exile, though the lowest point in Israel's history, is significant for them because God brings them back. God returns the people from exile and makes them a nation once again. And then it culminates in Jesus. Now, you'd think of all the people mentioned, maybe David would, would get a pass. I mean, if David, the, he's the greatest king. Maybe we wouldn't mention the blemish, the shame of some of the things in his life. You may be the, the one about whom God says he followed after me with all of his heart. Maybe he would be exempt from scrutiny. I mean, really, does Matthew have to mention Bathsheba? All the Jews already know, so do we have to keep talking about it? It doesn't mean everybody knows. It doesn't mean you put it right at the beginning of the book where everybody can see. Right in the beginning of of trying to prove the the validity of Jesus, you're going to mention Bathsheba? I mean, our families. I mean, probably most of us have something in our families, someone in our families that, you know, we kind of wish wasn't there. You know, uncle so-and-so who problems or aunt so-and-so who does those things. You know, everybody in the family knows about it, but you don't bring it up over Christmas dinner with everybody there. 
But Matthew isn't afraid to talk about it. I think it's because God is, God's not in the business of covering up things. Read the scriptures. God doesn't cover up much of anything. Go back to the book of Genesis, the very first place. And what do you have among God's people? Murder, deception, incest, abuse. I mean, if that's God's family, it's got to be the most dysfunctional family that's ever lived on earth. And you have to scratch your head and say, Lord, this is what you're giving us? Are you sure this is what you want to talk about? Right here at the beginning of the New Testament, we're brought face to face, face with the central theme of the gospel. The God who has been at work on sinful people from the beginning now comes among them in person. And he's come for the specific purpose of rescuing them from the mess that they've gotten themselves into. Christianity isn't advice about morals. It's good news about what God has done and what he's doing and what he promises to do. And all of it for real people. This genealogy is more than just a historical record that proves that Jesus possesses the appropriate messianic lineage. If that were the case, then we'd have all the names and Matthew wouldn't have worried about symmetry and probably wouldn't have mentioned the women. It's precisely because Matthew arranges it the way he does and mentions the people that he does that tells us this is more than just a genealogical history. This is a message from God about why Jesus comes and for whom Jesus comes and what God intends his kingdom to look like. And this list that we tend to ignore, gloss over, consider unnecessary for our faith is actually one of the most powerful declarations that God comes in human flesh for real people living real lives in real places doing real things. It's intriguing that in the few short verses that follow, as, the, as he talks about the angel appearing to, to Joseph, Matthew uses two terms to describe this child to come. Emmanuel, which means God with us, and Jesus, that means God saves. And neither name is coincidental to this list of saints and sinners that's gone before. And both names are imperative to think about together. God comes to save. God saves only because he comes. These are not perfect people. These are messy people living messy lives. But Advent reminds us that maybe we ought to look for God in the messiness of life because real life is messy. Real life is a struggle. Real life includes the sins that plague us. The sins that Jesus and Paul identify, hypocrisy, greed, lust, murder, anger, lying, hate, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. It's the sins of real people living real lives in real places. And Christ comes for people who struggle with real sins in order to save us from them. I think sometimes we have this idea that following God means that 
we're, we're no longer human. That, that God comes to people who really, you almost kind of get the feeling they're, they're not real. But nothing could be further from the truth. Have you noticed how, how real-like the mannequins in stores are nowadays? Have you noticed that? I mean, I don't know how many times I've, I've almost mistaken a mannequin for a real person. Not too long ago, I was in the store. I couldn't find something I wanted. I came this close to asking a mannequin that they could help me. <laughs> like, oh, wait, that's not a real person. And I know sometimes it's hard because, you know, customer service isn't always the best. And sometimes it seems as though the people who work in some of the stores are acting like mannequins. But that's a whole other subject we can talk about some other time. But somehow I think we get into our heads that the best Christians are mannequin-like. No mess, no fuss, no struggle, no problems. And that God wants mannequins. But God doesn't want mannequins. God wants real people. With all of our struggles and our problems and our messiness, that's real life. Jesus is born Emmanuel, the Savior, not to appease lifeless people, but to redeem real people, you and me. Mannequins might not be messy, but they also don't care about justice or mercy or truth or life or peace or joy or love. Mannequins don't worship or learn or build relationships, and God creates us to be real, even though our realness ends up requiring the sacrifice of his own son. God wants real people, even if our realness costs him. And this isn't just about us. It's about other people who don't act in a way that we think is appropriate or or they, they don't look right, or they don't fit our pattern. But this list of people that Matthew identifies with Jesus, isn't, it isn't a banner group, and yet Jesus comes in them and through them. Don't forget that We can't forget that Matthew begins this whole thing, and it's to him God says, I will bless the whole earth, all people in all places, real people in real places, I'll bless them through you. And now Jesus who comes to save is the fulfillment of that promise. I suspect that there are people in your life who need to hear that. They need to know, perhaps first from you, that they're loved and accepted because they're loved and accepted by God. Maybe it's somebody back home Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's, it's people you're going to see during the holidays. They're people who you don't really feel comfortable being around. They have different ideals. They have different goals for life. They have different values about life. And they make you feel uncomfortable. And you just as soon not be around them. And they probably know that. Can we do any less than Christ does for us? Are we willing to to step out into the real messiness of people's lives? 
just as Christ in a far, far greater way steps into the real messiness of ours. The ancestral line of Jesus is not perfect people. It's not about perfect people. It's about God sending his son into this real world of real people doing real things and making a mess out of it. And God coming right down into the middle of our mess as one of us. God comes not to people who are perfect, but to people who are real in order to make us like himself. This is Isaiah's prophecy that the people walking in darkness, real people living real lives, have seen a great light. And that light is Christ, God with us to save us. Through this genealogy, I think God is saying, I know these people are a mess, but I love them. In fact, I love them enough to become one of them and to get down in the middle of the mess in order to redeem them. That's good news. That's good news for you and for me and this whole world. Now, do we live as though we believe that good news? Gracious Father, thank you for being willing to step into our real lives to redeem us. We pray that you will help us to catch a new vision of that truth for us and for others. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.